In this episode of Amuse, writer, musician, and soldier Philip Kennedy Johnson discusses how he manages multiple careers. We'll explore his projects The Last God, Warlords of Appalachia, and Last Sons of America with Game of Thrones star Peter Dinklage. We'll also cover Philip's passion for music and mixed martial arts. And finally, in regards to the comic industry, Philip has some exciting new announcements to share. Joining the conversation as co-host is Dan Curtis, co-owner of Zeppelin Comics. I'm your host, Stefan Schultz, and this is Amuse. Thank you, Philip, very much for joining us and Dan for co-hosting today. Absolutely. Philip, you're calling from Washington, D.C., is that correct? Yeah, the Washington, D.C., Baltimore area. Okay, well, thanks for joining us. Let's get started with your origin story, your first memories of, of creative interests, creative projects. Um, for me, it was all about comics, man. Like, I did not have a lot in the way of toys. I, In fact, my dad did not believe in toys, literally, like Egon Spengler, um, <laughs> when I was real small. Um um, for a while, I had like stuff to build with and like comics and um, and books. Like you, would, <laughs> I got read to a good bit, um, but I actually learned to read from um, from comic books that Dad would bring home. Just these box of ripped up books from um, you know garage sales or whatever. So even like the stuff I was reading then was was old even then most of it, uh, and I just loved the hell out of them. Um, so as soon as I got my hands on them, I was pretty much making my own. I would draw a lot of pictures and, you know, put them together into storytelling and like literally taught myself how to read from those comics. Um, and that's where it all started for me. Like I, after that, I, I got into cartooning. I wanted to, I wanted to be an artist myself for a long time until I got into music. I ended up becoming a musician professionally. Um, just because I, at the time, like when I was in high school, I just kind of determined that I was better at it. I just, music seemed like the better way out. Um, so that's the path I took, but it could have easily gone the other way. What was the first instrument that you picked up musically? Um, when I was also real young, I, I picked up piano and, and, uh, trumpet actually. I had a, I had a grandpa who, who played, who had played trumpet very seriously once. And when he got sick, he gave me all his old gear. So when I was like four or five, I had a little cornet. Cornet's like a trumpet, just like smaller kind of. Um, and he taught me how to read music and how to how to play with it. So I um I was playing, I was banging on a piano and playing trumpet when I was like four or five. Nice. You had an in-house tutor. That's excellent. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned your father bringing home comic books. Was uh was he in the military as well or? Um, no. No, he wasn't. So uh, uh-huh. you you are a, a currently active military. First of all, thank you very much for your service. And yeah, sure. um, how do you balance the two, a creative per, uh, career and uh, an active military career? That's an, an impressive, probably uh, all-inclusive, but you're doing both. How do you manage that? Uh, it's easy. You just struggle constantly, <laughs> um, like constantly. <laughs> um yeah, that, that, that is straight up the answer. <laughs> like I just, I just, uh, do my best with it and constantly fail and, uh, just do my best to sleep as little as possible and to, um, try to not let anyone down too often or badly. <laughs> I'm just trying to, trying to be a good dad and, um, trying to do, do right by the, by the army, by my, you know, employers in the U S military and, um, writing as many stories as I can now. I, I'm no longer uh, an artist of any note. I was pretty good for a kid, but I haven't really drawn in a long time. So I, I write now, but I am having a hell of a good time with that. And um, my employers of the Army have been really great about letting me do both, about letting me pursue comics outside of my day gig. Um, 
for those who don't know me, with the military, I primarily play trumpet now. I play trumpet in one of the military bands in Washington, D.C., and we, we tour a great deal when COVID's not happening, and they mostly play concerts, like sit down concerts for the American people, and just tour a lot and, um, you know, connect America with its army in places where the army is not, and um, that's the job I play. I play a lot of music for the day job and write a lot of stories um, in my other career. So it's it's a lot. It's a lot to balance. What's the coolest concert you got to do? We've done a couple of military tattoos in Norway, which was really cool. We don't go overseas a great deal. We mostly play in the United States. One of my first couple of years in the band, like 15 years ago, we did a military tattoo. A tattoo is like a military marching show, and usually there's countries from all over the world represented. I attended the one in Edinburgh. It's uh, oh, unbelievable. Yeah. So cool. That's a great one, yeah. yeah. We, we, they try to get us over there for that one a handful of times, and the lawyers always tell us no for one reason or another. Oh, it's a gorgeous uh, venue and yeah, extraordinary light show. and Yeah, Yeah, I hear amazing things about that one. Um, but the one that we've done is in Oslo. Um, so I did that one, and we did it again, um, let me think, a couple of years ago now, I guess. Um, it's just an amazing show. And... Um, so we they, we do the marching thing, but we also play a um, a regular like sit down formal concert as well over there, and that was super well attended. And a lot of musicians from the other groups around the world were there, and that was really fun. We've done stuff in L.A. that was really great. We've played Severance Hall in Cleveland, where the the Cleveland Phil plays or Cleveland Orchestra plays. We played in Boston for the Fourth of July celebration a couple of times. We lead the inaugural parade every four years. That's cool or can be. I wanted to ask you how uh, how the enlistment process, at what point in your life did you decide to do that? Um, I was looking at Army when I was still in school. Like, I, I mean, not thinking about it as a creative outlet. I was just thinking sure. about joining, like, just, you know, just kind of one of the, I, don't, I mean, I didn't have anyone in my family I was close to that had, well, that's not true. My stepdad served. Um, but there's not a lot of military service in my, in my family mm-hmm. and just, I don't know, kind of dreamt of being a tough guy when I was a kid and kind of wanted to do it. <laughs> um, but then I got really into creative outlets and decided to pursue music. And I was like, well, I guess I'm, I'll do this instead. And then at some point I realized that I learned that there were like not screwing around military bands that really play well and do serious gigs. And I didn't know that military bands were a thing. Uh, or that they were so good. At some point I heard one, I was like, Jesus, this is really, like these guys know what they're doing. When I found out about these jobs in D.C., um, I was just really taken with them and was like, okay, I'm going to end up doing that someday. So I had my eyes on this job a long time ago, and I just, I really wanted to, that's when I started ticking off other boxes. Like, okay, I want to do everything else I can. I want to play, play in a funk band and a rock band and a jazz band and tour and do everything I can and eventually settle down and do that where I can actually have benefits and, serve my country and do that'll be like the settle down gig you know and that's pretty much exactly how it happened so i like quite a full plate (laughs) so most people don't get to do their one dream job exactly how are you doing two um i just lucked out man straight up i I really got lucky so i was in the army and i got a younger brother i told you i was i had to choose between mil uh between uh, music and and art and i ended up doing music i got a younger brother 10 years younger who went the other way. He also played trumpet and, and drew, but he was a better artist than me and took it more seriously and he ended up going that way. So he was finishing up high school and we lived in the sticks of Kentucky, like darkest Kentucky with like nothing around and no, no internet to speak of. No, like just nothing, nowhere place. And, um, he just didn't know how to get started. He wanted to draw comics, but he didn't know like in his own words, like I don't know shit about shit. I don't know what to do next. 
I was like, well, I don't either. Let's, let's figure it out. You know, like I, he didn't have, he didn't really have a portfolio. He wanted to do art school, didn't have the money, didn't really have the grades. And I wanted to help him. And I, I hadn't done creative writing in a long time. And I already, I'd already been in the army for maybe, I don't know, five years by that time. I was like, well, just move in with me, man. Like there's, there are jobs in the army for artists. Like there's a, there's a job in the military literally called multimedia illustrator. Like that's the name of the gig mm. where they'll, they'll train you in Photoshop and illustrator and InDesign and teach you everything you need to know, train you. And when you get out, you do one enlistment you get out, you got the GI bill. What types of things are they, are they illustrating? They're illustrating educational things, okay. brochures, posters, ads, designs for most units have like a crest and a, like a logo thing. Mm-hmm. And, all these materials that need to, that need some kind of graphic. Um, a lot of the graphics guys will also double as photographers, and those guys work. It's technically a different job, but it's but a lot of people do will kind of double up, do both. Mm-hmm. Anytime there's any kind of an advertisement or a poster or a flyer, anything, somebody's got to make all that stuff. Sure, they're not literally drawing pictures every time. Sometimes they're just combining graphic elements to make uh, right. like an ad or something. But um, but there is for people who can, there's a lot of drawing to it too, or can be. He was a really talented kid, you know, so we, he lived with me for a while. He got in shape. He figured out what he needed to do to get the ASVAB score he needed to get in, ASVAB being the, the military ACT, basically. While we were doing all that, we were also kind of educating ourselves in the comic industry. I got this great book by Andy Schmidt, a friend of mine now, uh, about how to, how to make comics, about how to get in the comics industry and how to make, how to make books. It kind of describes the whole process, taught us what a, what a script looked like, about how to put a portfolio together. And um, we started going to conventions and reading books, educating ourselves in comics. I started writing scripts for him to draw because he didn't have a, a portfolio even. He just kind of had a bunch of basically pinups, like, you know, a single image of Wolverine looking cool, but he didn't have a, a page, you know. Right. Um, didn't have any like a sequential storytelling experience. So I helped him do all that. And it was really rewarding. And it was a, a way for me to help him get his feet wet and, you know, give him a leg up. So, yeah, I went to conventions and met a lot of people and. He joined the army and now, I mean, years later now, he's done, he did a six-year stint in the army, got out, got the GI Bill, and now he's finishing up his time at, at SCAD. He's finishing up at Savannah College of Art and Design in comics, and he'll, he'll be out soon, and we'll be making books together, so it all kind of worked out. Excellent. What's the age difference between you and your brother? Uh, ten years. Ten years, so he's okay. Like, yeah, he's, he's like 32 now. What an awesome older brother, you know, <laughs> to hang out with your ten-year younger sibling. It was a good time. We uh, we learned a lot together, and I had a really kick-ass time doing it. So I just started looking for other artists to draw with. At some point, he started getting really busy, and especially when he got in the army, like we were looking at what to do. We did a couple of short stories together, and then we were we found this book called um, Fubar. You guys heard of Fubar? I have, but you know, for the non-initiated, <laughs> non-veterans, you can go ahead and explain what it means. Sure. Well, yeah. Thank I'm you. Gonna, um, Fubar is a an anthology of military zombie stories. Basically, it started out as I think World War II or Vietnam era. The format is smallish; it's like the size of a paperback book, like maybe like an inch or, sh- or or so thick. But there's been, you know, they were successful enough, presumably successful because they made a bunch of them. They there were a couple like that, and then they started branching out to other. Like there would be a theme for each one. Like one was like Revolutionary War. I think there was one for one for a war, another one for a region, another one for you know whatever some kind of a theme was. And uh, we saw this, and we were looking through it, and they're really fun and cool. We look through it, and we're like, you know, I think we can do this well. Do you want to submit something to these guys? Hmm. And so we started, put, started putting together a, a, um, a short story that we wanted to submit to FUBAR. The more we fleshed it out, it started getting bigger and bigger until it realized it was not really 
like we could do a lot better than just a short story with it. We wanted to make it into like a real book. And my brother was getting kind of busy by the time it was really becoming, turning into something. So I asked him, you know, would you mind if I did this with another artist? And he gave me his blessing and went off and did his own thing. And I found another artist and now it kind of became my first book. It became my, like a web comic that I had on my, I built a site basically just for a place to put that book. It became this, like a, a period horror piece called the lost boys of the U-boat Bremen, this whole thing that takes place on a U-boat full of teenage Nazis. And, um, at the end of the war, the Nazis were recruiting old men and, and kids to fill their U-boats and trenches because they were running out of people to, to send off to war. And, uh, it's basically Ridley Scott's alien meets Lord of the flies on a U-boat. Wow. Really proud of it. And it turned out really nice. And that kind of led to other things. That's, that sort of became how I got my foot in the door and eventually got a book made at boom studios called last sons of America with Matthew Dow Smith on art and it all sort of worked out for me. So I was super lucky. So since you you and your brother were both military, is there a significant influence in your creative process? Um, do those, do those two uh, influence each other, the, the creative process and, and your military experience? Um, I wouldn't say it influenced my creative process except in that, well, it says in some ways, I mean, I, I definitely, value the collaborative process of comics my time in music as much as my time in the military because it's all about both of those groups are all about the team you know like if, if you're playing small group jazz the one thing i've always really loved about jazz especially like combo jazz when it's you and a handful of people is that if you replace any one person on the book the entire product changes immediately like if you if you change out the bass player or the drummer or obviously the horn player or the pianist or anyone um everything changes like everyone or if they're, you know, if they're good musicians, they will adapt to whatever they're hearing. And I always thought that was just the coolest thing. Um, and that has definitely applied to how I see the comic process, any creative medium, really when you're not just doing everything yourself, like it's really important to react to the rest of the team. And it's kind of become my guiding light in comics is just, you know, responding to what you're seeing, what you're seeing from the other, from the rest of the team. It's different in that in, in jazz, it's all happening at once. Whereas with comics, it's kind of, it's step by step. It's easy for the writer to think that the, that the art team works for them because their step comes first, but it's, it needs to be as collaborative as possible, despite the, the time difference. Like you are the, uh, the writer writes their thing and then the penciler will do their contribution and goes to them, the colorist and all that. But ideally, there should be a pretty thorough rewriting process after the artist has done, has, has done their part. Um, if they don't, if they just like, well, I already did my part. And if they just expect the, the artist to just be an art monkey and do exactly what they're told in the script, that's not collaboration. I mean, it becomes just kind of stagnant to me. And, you, I, and there are some books where you can kind of tell that's how it went down. Well, you make an excellent point that if, if as the writer, if you had five artists uh, draw you, you, the script you'd have five different, they would have the same storyline, but they would be uniquely different because of the artist influence. So that collaboration, like you said, um, you take one artist out of the equation and it changes. Yeah. I mean, you can see that in my first two published books. Like I, my first book at Boom Studios was Last Sons of America. And that was with Matthew Dow Smith on pencils and inks and um, Doug Garbark on colors and Jim Campbell on letters. That was the team. And, and uh, even the editors were the same on the next book. Like the whole team was the same in the next book, except for the penciler, which was um, instead of Matthew Dow Smith on Last Sons, on Warlords of Appalachia, it was the exact same team, except Jonas Scharf, or Jonas, excuse me, he's a, he's a German guy. Like he was really young then. Um, Jonas Scharf, 
who just crushed it. But the whole the whole book looks so different, not just the pencil aspect, but the colors, the way Jim lettered it, the, the way I wrote for those guys. It all changed um, when Matthew left and Jonas came in for it. Um, and that's that to me is one of the reasons I'm so proud of both those books. It's just the, how everyone re- responded to everyone else as, it, as the process was happening. Do you intentionally write for the artists if you know who those artists are going to be? Oh yeah. I, yeah, I would, God, I would hate to write a book without knowing who's going to be on it. I mean, there, there are times when I, I mean, sometimes I've written the first draft of a script without knowing who's going to be on it, but I would never turn in a script like final ready to go script without knowing who's going to be drawn. And that would just be the worst. There's a gamut of detail and difference in detail between different writers when it comes to scripting and, and whatnot. Some are very vague. Some are very detailed. Where do you put sure. yourself on that spectrum? Um, I'll usually ask the, the artists what they, what they prefer. Um, just like an idea how they like to work. Um, but I, I mean, if I always write full script rather than like what they call Marvel style. You know, Marvel didn't really do it that way now. But yeah, if you read the write the Marvel way, which is the rough outline, give it to the artist. Once you see the art, fill in the talk. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's a valid way of doing it. I know a lot of artists like it that way, but not everyone. Like, there's some some artists really like the the freedom to just do whatever. The way I write usually is when there's a when there's dialogue that really matters, I will write those scenes out full script. Even if the artist doesn't like full script, I'll be like, I, with with the caveat that here's what I have in mind. These lines really matter, and there's essential information in this conversation. Take this script and do whatever you want with it. Like I, I'll put it in there, like you know, this is all just me telling you a story that you can, so you can tell a story next. It doesn't have to be as as rigid as I'm I'm writing it, but just know that these lines really matter, so that all the all the beats are there at least in some form, and then they'll do their thing and then I'll always rewrite it afterwards to match. But for action scenes, I'm not going to presume to, to be a better artist inside my own brain than the, than the artist is on paper. Like they, I, if I have certain things in mind that I'm envisioning in an action scene, I'll, I might, you know, put those in the script or like make notes about what I'm envisioning. Again, with the understanding that I would prefer to leave the actual choreography to them. I, I don't, I don't want to tell an artist how to write, how to draw an action scene. If the things that matter are not the words, but the actual fight and making the fight really look really awesome, I'd rather give the artist a ton of slack and just let them do their thing. And then I'll go back in and, and write after that to, to adjust to that. For um, speech-heavy scenes, I like to write full script pretty much always. And for action scene, I will always give them more room to, to do the heavy lifting themselves uh, whenever possible. Awesome. So now we can get back to what's happening with Last Sons of America, your first published work. Yeah, thanks. It's um, that has been that's getting developed for film. I'm crazy stoked about it. Obviously, it was um, one of the cool things about Boom when I first took this story to them is that they had this first look deal with Fox, and um, they're constantly looking for stuff to develop in film and TV, and. Um, that deal has kind of shifted around over the years and now they have kind of a, a thing going on with Netflix. So for those who haven't read the book, there is a character in it that looks very much like Peter Dinklage. The story is about two brothers um, and both of them kind of together, they kind of make up one person. Like they, one of them is, you know, tall, handsome and physically capable, 
and the other one is smaller. He looks like Peter Dinklage, sort of. And he, but he's actually less capable than Dinklage is. I mean, Dinklage is, you know, also a handsome guy. He's just small. Um, and the character in this book is actually physically less capable than that. He's he needs his brother to get around together. Like, but he's also the moral center, and he's the smarter one. He's the one that takes place in Nicaragua, and he's the one who speaks the language. And at some point, Dinklage got a hold of this book and read it. And rather than suing us for, you know, for having an image so similar to his own, uh, he he actually wanted to be a part of it. And so he's a good friends with Matt Reeves, the director and producer, who's directing the the new Batman, the upcoming Batman film, and also directing the recent Planet of the Apes films. He has a thing going with Netflix as well, and he wanted to develop Last Sons. So with Matt Reeves and Peter Dinklage attached, that movie is now getting developed. So we're super stoked about it. Are you already in production? No, it's, it's not getting shot or anything, but I, I don't know how much I'm supposed to tell, but the process is still moving forward and okay. uh, I don't, I don't want to blow any lids off. Sure. Um, Sci-fi but, has it on their website, so we're safe. Hey, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's moving forward. So it's, you know, it's pretty, pretty exciting. Cool. And then you, you did some planet of the apes work too, right? I did. There was a, yeah, I did a planet of the apes book. Um, so that was, that's just random. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, it's not related to Reeves' stuff. I mean, it, it ties into one of Reeves' films. The Boom Studio has the the uh, the license for Planet of the Apes. They did a um, is it fifty years? They did an anniversary issue that um, basically is an anthology of of ape stories, and some of them tied into the original Apes films continuity, and some of them tied into the Matt Reeves films. And um, I pitched a story that tied into the the most recent Reeves movies. Um, if you remember the second one, there was a, a teenage kid, teenage boy who drew a lot. Like one of the kids in that family was an artist. And this, my story picked up his story years after the events of all those movies. So you see him as an adult down the road and what, you know, the people he's with and what's, what the world has come to now. And he has a little adventure, but it's, yeah, it was really fun. So when you say you pitched the idea, was it, part of a was it part of a meeting or were you sitting at home watching planet of the apes and you're like i got a really awesome story in my brain and i need to go tell boom about it no they actually came to me i mean it's just a, it's just a short it was like i want to say eight pages no no i guess it's longer than that maybe like 20 or something anyway they they had the anthology in mind and they came to me like at that point i had done last sons of america and warlords of appalachia and they let me do an Adventure Time short. I think I might have already done the Dark Crystal sequel at that point, and they were just looking for licensed things for, for me to do. And they came to me with, um, they said, well, hey, we have this anthology. We'd like you to be a part of it. Matt Kent had a story in there. He was a you know big-name guy I admire. And he asked me if I wanted to do something for it. I'm like, yeah. So I I kind of started putting out some ideas what we could do. I think I gave him, I gave him several pitches, I think. But um, the one they picked was the one I wanted to do. So that, that was the one that, that we went with. So yeah, they actually brought that idea, not the idea for the story, but they asked, they uh, invited me to pitch for it. Did you put your own um, emphasis on that one since it's the one you wanted to do? Did you get it? Like, I have these ideas and then this one I'm really excited about. Or to quote Peter Dinklage, since we're talking about him a lot, is like, I have some ideas that I'm super stoked about. <laughs> No, I I gave him several. I would I would have been happy to do any of them. Um, I remember I did end up being I was, you know, kind of hoping for this one. But I, you know, 
I, I, I believed in all of them. I just, I didn't want to hedge my bets or shoot myself in the foot by being like, this is the one I really think is great. And these other kind of, these other ones are kind of whatever. Um, I wanted to let them make that decision. Um, cause you know, your opinions are almost never exactly the same as everyone who reads this stuff. So in case they got really excited about one of the other ones, which has happened, I've pitched, I've definitely pitched books before where I expect one to be the one to get over the plate and actually get really excited about a different one. So I just gave them three and let them, let them do what they wanted. Fast forwarding a little bit, the last God for DC comics and yes. Marvel zombie resurrection Number one, both came out on the exact same day. So for the the non-comic initiated, that's the two biggest publishing houses there are in comics. And to have a number one drop on the same one day by the same one writer, <laughs> how's that happen? Is that like a baseball shutout and no hitter? That's like a no hitter and a hat trick on the same day. <laughs> wow. It worked out nice. It was... Um I mean, honestly, I think the reason was that it was this magical marketing day where it was, it was Halloween Eve last year, October 30th. And that's just, that's the day you want to come out with creepy shit, right? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, Last God was this epic fantasy horror book. And I think when they were figuring out the schedule, you know, figuring out the calendar, like, you know, nine months ahead of time or a year, whatever it was, it was like, okay, what do we want to put out on Christmas? What do you want to put out on, on, uh, you know, whatever day, what do you want to put out on Halloween? And it just strikes you as a Halloween book, you know. And at Marvel, I love working at both houses, but Marvel definitely, I, I tend to get shorter notice on stuff at Marvel. They're like, hey, we want you to do this thing. We need the script like in two weeks. Um, <laughs> it just kind of came together quick. And I think that one came together quick in part because everyone had just found out that Robert Kirkman had, had just put out the last issue of Walking Dead. For those who don't know, the Walking Dead comic, the last issue of the book he didn't tell anyone it was going to be the last issue, even in the, even in the solicitations, nobody knew it was going to be the last issue until like right before it actually hit shelves. And everyone's like, Oh shit, this book is over. Wow. Yeah. Naughty, naughty. Yeah. It was, yeah. it was difficult from a retail perspective because we might have bought more. Yeah. Because a lot nice of people were asking for that one. Yeah. And, it struck me as kind of a jerk move in some ways, but I, I get for creative reasons, it's cool, but I, I would have been you know, frustrated as a retailer myself. Um, so as soon as people found out that that was happening, there was this big flurry of, of news about it. And I swear it was like the, that day that I got the call from, from Jordan White at X-Men, at, who'd been editing X-Men, like, hey, we want to do this Marvel Zombies reboot. Because Kirkman had written the original Marvel Zombies and they wanted to do a, um, uh, like a, a relaunch of that series. And, um... You know, I'm not going to say no to that. I mean, I, I didn't really have the time, but I was like, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not going to say no to Marvel Zombies. I did not – the original was not my speed. Like, I, it was just kind of a fun zombie romp, and it's not really the stuff I – I mean, Shaun of the Dead I love, but the original Marvel Zombies was just kind of like a bunch of Marvel – it was just the, the concept of seeing your favorite Marvel, Marvel heroes as zombies, cracking jokes and eating brains and just kind of screwing around. There wasn't any emotional stakes. It was just – seeing it was just the novelty of seeing spider-man and hulk and everyone else as zombies and at that point that's already been done and i wanted to do a very different take on it um and they let me they let me do i, I pitched it as cormac mccarthy's marvel zombies where, it's, where instead of you know like if the original marvel zombies was planet terror by robert rodriguez and this would be the road you know like much more 
emotional stakes, bleak as shit, and but also like real emotional stakes where you really feel the wins and the losses as the book goes on. More like you know Walking Dead actually. And sure. they went for it and worked out great. But it was clearly going to be a Halloween kind of book. And um, it just really lucked out for me that they wanted to drop both those books the same day. Talking about Last God, the majority of the books that DC publishes are inside of the DC universe, and this one is not. Uh, right. Walk us through it. Well, it began as a Vertigo book, actually. Um, Last God was going to be a Vertigo title. And some of Vertigo books do not tie into superhero continuity. Uh, Black Label was this thing that they developed where it was still primarily about superheroes, but the much darker take, like the Batman Damned thing that they did. Um, the Joker Harley things I've been doing since then, the Joker book that Jeff Lemire wrote. <clears throat> um, you know, just more grown-up, more stylized takes on superheroes that are not necessarily in continuity. Um, but the nature of The Last God still kind of fits in their brand. Like it, like the, the Black Label was not just dark takes on superheroes. It was also, they were also putting out the Joe Hill, the Hill House imprint that they had just announced where mm-hmm. Joe Hill was doing like writing and or curating a series of horror books, basically. Uh, Last God wasn't really part of, of Hill House because um, he wasn't involved in the creative process and didn't have any stakes in it financially or anything. But um, it still kind of fit under the umbrella of, of black label. So when they started putting out black label books, um, and returning into like the vertigo books were either going away or turning into black label books, it made sense. Like it's still very much fit as a black label title. So even though it's not like, it's still a creator owned book for me, like there's not going to be any, you know, my characters are not going to be showing up in, in superhero titles anytime soon. I mean, I guess it wouldn't be beyond the realm of possibility. It just wouldn't seem, wouldn't seem like a good fit to me. Um, it's still, you know, felt like a fit in the Black Label umbrella. DC, as opposed to some of the other independent publishers, don't do creator-owned. They like you to play in their sandbox. Yeah, totally. And that, yeah, that, that is mostly how it works. I mean, this one... Um, I mean, this one had already gotten across the plate. The timing just worked out where it had already been greenlit as a vertical book. We already had the, A ton of it was already finished. Um, and it looked like initial sales were going to be really strong, which they ended up being... And they didn't want to just, you know, at that point, what are you going to do? You're, you're Everyone's already kind of locked in. DC kind of came to me with that idea. My editor, um, Amadeo Torturo, the great dude who I had a really good working relationship already with, came to me as like, he's a he's a hardcore tabletop gaming guy when he's not doing comics. He's way into D&D. And um, asked like, hey, would you want to do, this is the direct quote. He's like, would you want to do a horror book in a world where there's like wizards and shit? <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, I was like, so just to be clear, you want me to write an epic fantasy horror book? I'm like, yes, yes, I do want to do that. And that's all the direction I got. They were like, go with God, come back to us with a, an epic fantasy horror pitch. And I wrote this thing that became The Last God. And that was only, usually I, I bring back several pitches, but this time I only just did the one. I did a, I fleshed out a pretty thorough pitch about what I wanted to do with Last God. And they dug it and it got over the plate. Um, so by that point, DC was invested in it. I wouldn't. I wasn't going to take that book elsewhere at that point. Like if DC wanted to do it, I was going to do it with them. Because again, it was going to be Vertigo, and I, I'd always dreamed of doing a Vertigo book anyway. I mean, that was my jam for such a long time. So yeah, I was honored to do it with Vertigo, and just as stoked to do it with 
black label from a marketing perspective it was cool too because it was weird for them to see a black label book that was not batman you know to see something that was a creator owned book but under the dc name was very noteworthy so you know it was it was cool for me sure and then kind of talk a little bit about your experience with dc in their uh creatives program um they so i had already done one book with them i'd done this aquaman annual so the big two have these things called inventory issues that they do where they you know you can't be late on you can't ship late on avengers or x-men or whatever like whatever that title is it needs to hit the month it says it's going to hit so often they will have inventory issues kind of in the can just in case they need to plug one in or if an artist is falling behind and needs to need some time to catch up or writer, same thing, or somebody gets sick or whatever happens, you know, Superman by God is going to hit every month. <laughs> so they'll have somebody write in, write and draw inventory issues. And I had done two issues of Aquaman um, as an inventory that Brian Cunningham had, had uh, seen my work on last sons and, and liked it and asked me if I wanted to write for DC. And so we, he told me the books he was doing and what he needed inventories for. And so I was like, well, let's do Aquaman. So I, I did these two issues and uh, they turned out really nice. Max Fumar did the artwork. Dave Stewart colored it. It turned out really beautiful. And um, I'm very proud of it. It's a very personal story about fatherhood, basically. Yeah, so that that got me on DC's radar. And I had not really considered doing the writer's workshop. So at, around that time, the talent development team was doing the talent workshop, the talent showcase things where they would do a writer's workshop and an artist workshop and they work with some of their biggest people and do master classes every week, like classes every week, assignments and everything like a little writer's commune. And I'd never really done a workshop before and I was just busy as hell. I was still, this is before COVID, so I was still touring three times a year and I, the thing said, I'd looked at it before and it sounded awesome. Like you'd be studying with Scott Snyder, who's one of my, you know, writing heroes and it sounded awesome, but I a 13-week commitment where you had to be online at a specific time every Wednesday for 13 weeks, and there's no way that I wasn't going to be on tour for at least some of that. Um, and I have a concert every night when I'm on tour, so I didn't really expect it to work out. But um, so I didn't even put in for it. But then Brian Cunningham, the guy who brought me in, reached out like, "Hey man, would you want to submit for a talent workshop for the writers workshop?" And I'm like, "No, <laughs> like I don't think I can do it." <laughs> And, um, he's like, no, man, we'll make it work. Like if you, if you did it and if they pick you, um, there's a little bit of flexibility. I know it doesn't say it on the website, but we can work around your schedule a bit for, if you need to miss a class or something, we'll, we'll work it out. Yeah. So I, I worked it out with my, my bosses at the army. Uh, can I submit for this thing? And it might mean missing one concert and they, they let it fly. And so I submitted to DC with the understanding that I might have to miss one class. And they said that was fine too. And ended up getting in. Aquaman kind of led to the writer's workshop, and that led to me getting on, uh, let me, you know, writing a, a Batgirl inventory that so far has not been published, but turned out very well, which led to me getting some short story work, and now is leading to other big stuff. So it all kind of all kind of worked out for me there. So what big stuff? Well, as of this release, you have some some pretty good announcements to make. You want to elaborate on those? Yeah, I would love to. So, well, I mean, aside from some anthology pieces that I've done that are coming out um, in November, I have um, Tales from the Dark Multiverse, Batman coming out, 
and it's a, a retelling of the Batman Hush story, like a reimagining of the of the Hush story. That's November, which I'm mad stoked about. And uh, even bigger news, which is just announced, is that I'm going to be taking over Action Comics um, from Brian Michael Bendis, and that's I, I could not be more excited about that. I've been a Superman fan literally my entire life, and uh, yeah, I'm writing Superman now. You don't have enough to do already, so you're going to take on all that. <laughs> yeah, man, I'm bored. No, I, I mean, it's, it's such an honor, though, to write that that character, to get put my stamp on it. I have very strong opinions about what Superman should be to the world and stories I want to tell with him. And I mean, I have really like powerful memories with my own son watching the original Christopher Reeve movie that you know when it was re-released, and just we have yeah, I just have really strong feelings attached to Superman. So look out for that. I'm going to be, I'm taking this book so seriously and we're taking some crazy big swings on this book. So well, I, congratulations I on all fronts there. That's Thank you so news. much, man. I, thanks. I really appreciate that. I'm, I won't let you down. <laughs> so I, I know you can't reveal anything about it, but uh, more powers, less powers. Oh, um, good question. Oh man, that's a tricky thing. <laughs> yeah, n- not difficult to navigate that <laughs> one. Give us an answer, but don't. <laughs> um, well, it's funny you say that because his powers are an element of the story. Like the 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 question of powers is a thing I can't reveal right now, but that's really a prescient question. <laughs> so um, I will say that um, I really respect what Brian Michael Bendis has done with Superman, and that he's really humanized him in a, in a big way. It's been all about him and his relationships with other people on earth, about his, his life as a journalist, his identity as Clark Kent and kind of unifying that with his identity as Superman. And I admire all of that very much. What we're doing with, uh, with my run is going to be, uh, a more epic story. Like it's going to be kind of go like where was, um, Brian Bendis was very interested in, um, you know, studying him as a character, like going like really in the micro of who Superman is. I develop a lot. I continue to build on a lot of the stuff that he gave us in his run, but it also blows it way out to the macro. And we're going to see a lot more of what Superman means to not just Earth, but to the universe. We're going to see a, a, this huge, huge swing. Like it's just the story that we're telling is such a big swing. When I think about it, it's a little bit daunting, actually, but it's just the biggest of swings. And I, it's so it's such an exciting story. It's such a a build is not just on Bendis' work, but also on just the the concept of Superman as a, a figure of hope to the entire civilized universe. There's just so much story to tell there that I wanted to do. And yeah, God, I can't wait people to see it. This episode of Muse is sponsored by Zeppelin Comics. Located in the heart of historic downtown Benicia, California, Zeppelin Comics is your source for comics, graphic novels, games, and gifts. A comic book store like no other. You can find Zeppelin Comics online at zeppelincomics.com. When you talk about working with Superman, working with somebody else's character, playing in someone else's sandbox versus your own creator-owned stuff, um, where it's it's an idea that you have uh, developed, created, come up with, it's original. Talk about compare and contrast those two different styles, those two different operations, working with a character that's already established versus creating one of your own out of whole cloth. Before I really started doing like bigger books, I've always heard about, about different um, creators take on that. 
and how like pretty much everyone says that they get more satisfaction out of creator owned, which I completely understand. For me, it's not that simple. Like I, I approach licensed books as if they were creator owned. I, I love to world build. I got into comics to, well, I got into comics to help my brother, but I, I creatively, I really love world building. That's why I, I'm still doing comics because I want to, I love world building. I mean, that's the last God is there's so much of me in that book. Um, cause it was a chance to, you know, honor Tolkien, not honor to honor my, my fantasy heroes. Um, and you know, to invent literal worlds and, religions and languages and cultures and histories and you know fighting systems and just so much you can still do a lot of that in um in licensed comics and i i've tried to do that like they marvel zombies is the perfect example where i've they let me there's there's a time jump in that book that lets me basically remake the earth and, and show what what things have come to five years after the emergence of the zombies and what the world looks like now, what's happened to these characters, what happened with shield, what happened with aim, what happened with the phalanx, what happened with, you know, specific characters in the Avengers and the X-Men. And like, I I wanted to just like, just blow up the Marvel zombie, the Marvel universe and just start again and just reimagine everything. And they let me do all that. Um, it's just a dream come true. And honestly, Aquaman was the same situation. And a lot of these short stories I've done are the same thing. Like I always try to take this big swing and just really try to build my own world in within the parameters that they've given. Um, I've been really lucky with that. And I, I get just as much satisfaction in licensed books as I do with my creator own work. And I'm, I mean, in theory, I feel guilty where I should, I should, <laughs> a little voice is telling me, man, you really got to focus more on your creator own stuff. But I'm having a great time. I really love doing licensed books. The stuff they're doing, you will not believe what they're letting me get away with in Superman. <laughs> it's, it's just the biggest of big swings. We're building a legacy in that book that will hopefully have ramifications across the entire DC line if they want to use it. The stuff I'm, the, the characters we're introducing, the cultures we're building, the mythology we're adding to. Um, I get all the same satisfaction out of writing action comics and Marvel zombies and, and other stuff um, that I do for my license book or my creator owned books. So for now I'm having a great time. At some point I do, I definitely have stories in mind that I want to tell that I would not be able to do with the DC or Marvel stamp on them. Like they're, you know, a little more, a little grittier, a little crueler or sadder that need to be, um, that need to have only my name on it. But um, for now I'm just having a, just a kick-ass time seems like it'd be very creatively fulfilling and satisfying to to be able to expand that universe yeah it, it really is i creator owned is a place for me to tell stories that i think matter to the world in a way that i don't, I don't have to worry about um a corporation attaching their name to a you know yeah. political statement or a social commentary piece or whatever like last sons of america is unapologetically about the um the for-profit adoption industry and the problems within that um, and what America means to the world and the way that we harvest children for people to adopt here. I mean, there's, it's a high concept thing about a world in which Americans can't have kids anymore. So we, we buy them like furniture from other countries. It's basically about human trafficking made legit. And unfortunately there's nothing, there's almost nothing in a story that's made up. Like the concept of America being sterilized and having to get kids from other countries 
that part is is made up. But it, like it's everything that happens after that is stuff that happens in real life. And it's a statement that I wanted to make to the world and uh, something I wanted to show people because human trafficking is a thing I care about a great deal. Mm. Warlords of Appalachia is a story that takes place after the second American Civil War and Kentucky has become an occupied nation within U.S. borders, like the Afghanistan of the American South, and American soldiers are occupying this little mountain town. Um, that first issue came out <laughs> October 2016, right before Trump won. And um, I'm an American soldier, and I've taken an oath, and I, I am legally bound by the Universal Code of Military Justice, and I'm not allowed to make political statements, really, um, publicly. Can't, uh, I can't dog um, elected officials. Mm-hmm. But what I can do is write fictional comic books. <laughs> <laughs> we so got you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we should look to that for your... Yeah. Personal views. Personal views. And air yeah. quotes around personal. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So th- it's a place, there, those are stories I could not have done at DC or Marvel. So I definitely, and there's other stories I want to tell too, um, just as badly that matter to me, at least just as much, and that I think should matter to the world as well. So there are things I want to, there's stories I want to tell that matter a lot to me that do not always fit in licensed books. And um, I mean, financially, it makes sense. It makes sense to have stuff that, you know, could be developed for film and TV. But I'm trying to think about that when I'm writing comic books. I'm trying to make the best comics I can. I'm trying not to think about it like, man, you know, Fox is really in love with this. Or, you know, I, I really just want to make the best book I can and think about that medium. And if something else comes from it, that's great. But I wasn't thinking about film when we wrote Last, uh, Last Sons. For sure, for sure. And then are you creating on the music side of things too? Yeah, I, um, I compose and arrange things for, for my, you know, my other job. But I also write music when I can for for my for my comics. Um, every issue of Warlords of Appalachia had an original song on the back issue on the back cover, and um, we actually recorded one of those songs as a trailer for the book when it came out. And Last God again, I've just I poured an unthinkable amount of hours into Last God. There is an original song in just about every issue of that book as well. Um, every issue has at least four pages of back matter at the end. I use that as a chance to publish sheet music, like little songs and prayers and hymns and things from the world of the last God, the world called Cain and noon. Excuse my ignorance, but even say it's on the back cover. Is it a downloadable link or do you actually have the sheet music printed there? Well, in, in Warlords of Appalachia, it was the back cover. Um, but in the last God is in the, there's like four issues, it's four pages of additional content in the back of every issue. So it's in the interiors of the book. Like if you, if you buy the, the comic book, um, there are some pages of text or music or whatever um, in the back of every issue. Like after the art is done, there's um, there's other stuff in the back. Even if you buy it on Comixology, you'll see it there at the end of the after the last page of interior art. Or at your local comic book shop. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you. So, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like if you if you buy the whether you you know whatever your format you buy it in, it's it's there. It's in the it's in the issue. Nice. So is, is that part of that Tolkien influence? Yeah, exactly. I was always really struck by how um, how Tolkien um, would write these, you know, little folk tales, like these little stories that are told within the story that he's writing, within the novel, little songs and poems and um, that would show up. They just make the world feel so much more rich and old and true. I wanted that for, for my stuff too. And plus, I mean, that's, I mean, Tolkien's whole world grew out of, 
language, you know, it all came out of like his, he wrote these, he made up these languages and from those languages came all this mythology and this entire, like literally world building just made an entire story of this other world built around the languages that he made up. For me, that's music. Like I, the music is the thing that makes the whole thing feel real. I have these songs of different cultures and sometimes sung in different languages that, uh, that make that, that give that world its history. So the, like in the, in most of the issues, a song is actually being sung at some point in the issue that you can see in the interior art. And then in the, the bonus material in the back, often you can see the, the sheet music as well. If there's room for it, there's only four pages. Sometimes there's a story back there, like a prose story that, that needs all that space. Other times there's like a, a sacred hymn or some kind of sacred text that's back there or a, just a regular text poem. Um, other time but when there's space i usually include a you know a piece of sheet music and that's written in the sheet music and sheet music that we can actually read and play like it's western sheet music but there's also the um in the musical notation of that world too so you can see what music looks like to them very cool i know it's a little bit overkill but that's how i do things no, that's very very cool that's a little added bonus there's no such thing as overkill right <laughs> like you either killed it or you didn't <laughs> and you definitely kill it well, thanks. So, composing music, playing music full time, having a family, writing Last Gods, writing Superman stories—you couldn't possibly have time for anything else. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely it. Um, no, there has been. There was just another announcement that I'm really excited about. Um, just as much as Superman, like, like I'm just the luckiest dude in the biz. I'm writing the launch of the Alien series for Marvel. Mm. Wow, and that's that's Ridley Scott's Aliens. Yes, I am the the biggest Alien fan ever. <laughs> like they, like when these guys came to me with this, like in fact, I do not often reach out about uh, about license. Like, hey, I'd really have to write this book. But when they announced, I mean, I read the announcement with everyone else that Marvel had just bought the Alien and Predator franchises, like the licenses to to do those books. I saw that online with everyone else, and wrote to my Marvel Zombies editor, like right then, that moment, it's like, I know you've probably already got someone for this, but I would crush an alien book if you give me the shot. Like if, if there's anyone, if you guys are looking for somebody to do one of these alien books, I mean, Predator 2, but alien. <laughs> like if you, right. Please put me on alien, like if there's any way. And it totally worked out. I, I completely expected that he would say, yeah, we've already got someone on it. I had for months. But thanks for your interest. Was the response quick or did it take a while and, and you're agonizing over it? It was pretty quick. Well, he wrote back. It wasn't Jordan's not doing that particular book. He wrote back. You know what? I think that would really work out nice. Um, mm. He's like, yeah, I'll, I'll put in a word with so and so. Like a week or two later, I got the call, and I'm like, you don't, you guys don't even know how you struck gold. Like I, I, you know, I just sit at night and think about these stories. I love Ridley Scott. Like not just these. I love everything Ridley Scott does. I love the other Alien movies too more than I should. Like not all of them. Resurrection sucked. I really love the other ones. <laughs> Um, but yeah, God, I've been to quote Colbert. I've been running my whole life, been training my whole life for a race. I didn't know was coming <laughs> and the same for Superman. It seems like, it sounds like I'm just blowing smoke. Cause I, I'm basically said the same thing for Superman, but honestly, these two books, like I could, I could die next year and like, just, just please let me tell these stories and I'll be good. That's fantastic news. Congratulations again. Thanks man. I'm so stoked. Salvador LaRocca is doing the art. We didn't talk about the art on Superman. Like, that's going to be done by Mikhail uh, Yanin, 
who's been doing Batman with Tom King and did Grayson before that and just crushing it on all fronts. And Alien is going to be Salvador La Roca, who has been doing Star Wars lately and just is a master with, with uh, these licensed books. I, yeah, he's a, a great choice. I can't wait for people to see what we're doing. This the story that we're telling for the for this first arc is um, really exciting. Very much in the in the tradition of the first two films. Um, it'll be a lot there to love. I hope um, for people who love those movies too. Try not to be. I don't want to just rip it off. I mean, everyone loves that second movie, especially. I love the first one just as much. I'm trying not to. I'm trying to pay homage to those films without being just a rip-off artist. Mm-hmm. And I think we've done it. I think we've told a really original story that matters to me, and I, have, I think will matter to other people. With again, a lot of emotional stakes, um, but also some stakes for the for the franchise. You know, that helps give the direction where the where this. You know, what happens after those films take place. Um. So yeah, stay tuned. There's going to be some really kick-ass stories coming your way. So yeah. it's it's taking place post aliens. Yes, aliens or alien. Yeah, I think I can, I think I I think I can say that much. I, I hopefully <laughs> they, hopefully they won't take my hands for revealing that much of a of a secret. It's going to be taking place after the first two films and very much belongs in that same world without being so similar that you feel like you've seen it before. It's definitely a new story. We'll see new corners of that universe. We'll see new stories that are not that don't revolve just around LV four two six, but very much of that world. Do you have restrictions on on canon and things like that, or are you free to um, let Newt grow up? In this first arc, I didn't really want to. Hmm, what can I say? <laughs> In this first arc, I didn't want to contradict anything. Okay. Um, because as we know, Alien three exists. <laughs> and not everyone agrees on that. Like there's a um, certain favorites were killed off screen. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. I mean, take a yeah, deep breath, Dan. It's okay. <laughs> characters are really matter. I'm a, I'm a Michael Bean fan. Yeah. I am too. I am <laughs> Me too. He's great. There's a, a very strong active faction online that believes that alien three is not Canon. <laughs> um, and I respect that. I, but I also like that movie a lot more than most people. I think that it actually did. I mean, yeah, the, the the decision to kill those characters sucked. Like, I really, I hated to see those characters gone. But I thought that the the, uh, the story that took place after that was very effective, and I think that that was a great ending for Ripley. So I wanted to tell a story that would apply, existed in such a time and place that you could still take in either story and not be pissed. <laughs> like, not I'm not. I don't wanna undo anything that's been done or that might be coming in the future. So I chose my setting and my characters very carefully. And um, this will be a story that all, hopefully, I mean, I am the consummate alien fan and I really didn't want to turn anyone away knowing that not everyone feels like I do about that movie or about other stuff that's coming in the future. Um, so I wanted to make sure that this is something that everyone can potentially love without uh, undoing anything that else that they love. Yeah, I don't know if there's anybody that wouldn't agree that those first two films are extraordinary there are two totally. sides of it of the same coin you know um, yeah they're so they're complimentary so different. different yeah they, yes it works so well like they didn't try to remake the first one which it was a big risk for them mm-hmm. you know at the time i'm sure i'm sure there were producers who were you know losing sleep or like but it's so it's not the same thing fans are going to get pissed i'm sure that that's the kind of stuff that they they're all about just selling it right then they i yeah. i understand that that there w- might have been some problems choking down the fact that it's like an, it's a straight up action movie 
but um, it made sense for the first one to be like this little locked room thing where you're you're trapped on a boat with this thing, like very much like my first webcomic was. I mean, it was straight up just like that. I get like you're going going from that to like an entire nest. It was like just it made sense. Mm-hmm. Like you get to see it was like great development where you get to see more of the not the culture of the aliens. I don't think they have one, but they they're um, see how their how their race works. Get to see how they reproduce and what they do when there's more of them. How do they, you know, just it answers so many questions in a very linear way. And I wanted to continue that trajectory. So it's safe to say that both Superman and aliens are safe in your hands. I hope so. I definitely, <laughs> I mean, I like to think so. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're not going to find anyone that loves either one of them more than me. So hopefully fans dig it. Look forward to, to what you do with both those franchises. Excellent. Thank you, man. I appreciate that. I want to kind of take a left turn and uh, go something fun. Now, there's got to be a great story behind this, but I'm looking at your website right now, and I'll quote, he will fight anyone who argues that MMA come from Brazil. <laughs> <laughs> what is that? I did say that. Um, well, I, you know, I'm an American soldier, and I consider myself a patriot. I know that sometimes means different things these days. I am a student of American art forms. Like I really, I'm a devotee of jazz music, especially. I also really love MMA and I regard it as an American art form. Now there are those who would say that the UFC came from Brazil because of the way that whole tournament came together. Um, the Gracie family had a stake in its formation and the, in the bringing together for those who don't know UFC of course, is now it's like a, a league, like the NFL or NBA or whatever. But it began. It stands for Ultimate Fighting Championship, and it, it initially was just that. It was a tournament of fighters that all do their own thing. It was like a to see. It's like the superhero thing. Who would win between, you know, Superman and Thor, or the Hulk and friggin' whatever, like you know, Wolverine and Batman. It's kind of that thing. It's like you got a sumo wrestler versus a kung fu guy versus a boxer against a Greco-Roman wrestler or whatever. <laughs> and that's what they did. Not even any weight classes. Like that first that first tournament was rough. Like no rounds. It was just get in there, you know, go in the cage like Thunderdome. Like, you know, you get in there and you fight until someone can't move. And you would see these people who just did one discipline. It all kind of grew out of the Gracie family's the standing challenge they had to the world where they were this family who invented Brazilian jiu-jitsu, this amazing fighting style, primarily a grappling art, mm-hmm. where anyone anyone could go to Gracie's home, Gracie's would feed them, and then they'd fight, and just to see who would win. See, if someone else thought that they could take down one of the Gracie's in their chosen uh, style, that was the challenge, and supposedly they'd tended not to lose. I don't I don't I don't know if I can say for sure that they never lost, but that was the thing. They were trying to make this martial art that could take down all others. And at some point that kind of became kind of um they had a stake in the creation of the UFC, this tournament. And so and people who fought would have to fight more than once per day. And if you've seen these fights, they're rough. Yeah. Big time. And uh, the guy who won the first, second and fourth of these tournaments was um Hoist Gracie, was one of the one of the sons of son, I think of the, of uh, the guy who founded the sport. He wasn't even the best in the family. Like he was like the, 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 uh, the choice of Hoist Gracie was basically to give them an out in case he did lose. Mm. Um, I was like, Oh, he's just, he's the puny one. <laughs> he's the guy that, 
he's not even the best of the, of the siblings or cousins. Like I didn't, you know, I don't know as much as I should about the family as far as who's who, but, um, but he beat everyone and, uh, he would have won the third one too, except he got, uh, injured in one of the fights and couldn't complete the tournament. I mean, he, he won his fight and like was hurt too badly to continue. So there are those who would say that Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, the, the UFC began, had his roots in Brazil. And I would argue that's not the case, you, but um, according to your website, you do more than argue. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it was, yeah, it's just me you know, throwing, throwing some shade. Do you partake? Um, I do. Oh my gosh. Okay. In, in addition yeah. to your other million things in your you spare got time, the time, he's got the time to do it. Yeah. Wow. Well, Philip, I mean, right impressive. now, I mean, realistically right now I'm just working a bag. I mean, there's, um, you know, there's COVID. I'm not interested in training right now. Yeah. Um, just trying to keep it out of my house, you know, the COVID thing. So I, I'm, so I work a bag still. And I like downstairs, I have a standing kick bag and a hanging heavy bag and some mat space. So I do little drills and things and try to, you know, vaguely remember these skills. And I, I teach my son as well. I've got a six year old. So I show him some things like I hold mitts for him and teach him combinations. Do you go so, to the bag when you're creatively stifled? Um, no, I, when I'm creatively stifled, I, I'm not sure I ever get stifled so much, but I, I do try to stay creatively strong by taking in things that are great. Like I try to watch or read other work that I admire a lot. I'm just try to try to watch and read great storytelling. You know, like I, that's what kind of keeps me sharp is just being inspired by other creators that I admire. Um, so, I mean, I definitely take out some frustration in my life on the bag. <laughs> and like when I, when I feel like I need to, it's, I mean, it's the best therapy. I, you know, having, you know, someone who grew up with a certain amount of abuse, I, I, um, something about, I don't know. I just feel better when I'm after I've been sparring. I just, I, um, when I can spar with somebody and feel a little bit beat up, but also like really like, like my muscles feel tired, but also like kind of got, you know, roughed up a little bit. It just feels like you've done something real, you know? Yeah. Well, when you're exercising your brain so much in writing and creating, it's a nice uh, opposite energy yeah, release. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, it's definitely a good, a great release and the best therapy. So, all right. So I I have one more question. It's a two part. It's called best, not so best. In your creative career, um, a not so best project, most challenging project with obstacles. How did you overcome them? So not so best first. Not so best first. Yeah, we want to end on something positive. So. <laughs> yeah, let's do that. Um, I did a book called Kong Gods of Skull Island early on. That was my one of my first licensed books. Mm-hmm. And it was awesome. I, was, I love doing it. The Kong stuff is really cool. They let me tell the story that took place before the original Kong, King Kong story, mm. where this um, Howard Hughes type philanthropist found this island out in the middle of nowhere that ends up being Skull Island. And he he thinks he's the first one to find it. And he and he finds these these natives there and he tries to basically civilize them. He goes out there with, you know, builders and teachers and missionaries and tries to civilize them and, and colonize Skull Island. And he doesn't know that, you know, the people of Skull Island already have their gods and they're real and they don't need these other gods. And it's, um, yeah, he kind of gets his eyes open. And um, it was an important story to me for a story about religion and about, about respecting faiths of other countries and just the conquering spirit of the West, you know, that I wanted to, to, to talk about. And um, there were, 
as an opportunity to make all these original creatures that we've never seen on the island before that, again, for world-building reasons, were, like, really, thought it was going to be really cool. And it was cool, but I definitely got a lot of pushback from them. Um, the from the from the licensors and like so I would I would uh, describe how you know what some of these other creatures would look like and I'd get replies like well nope you can't do that because here are drawings from this old ass Kong novel that came out that uh, we got to stick make sure the dinosaurs look just like these mm. and these other things aren't dinosaurs so we can't have them and there were a lot of things like that where they, they would show us pictures that are basically just straight up dinosaurs with like a, you know, like a straight up brontosaurus with a little fin on its back or something like some little bitty thing that basically was not taking any kind of a chance at all. It was all just dinosaurs. And I was like, well, this isn't going to work. Let's, uh, let's do something that, uh, that is way cooler. And I, we, there's a lot of back and forth, like a lot of back and forth in that book. And I ended up being extremely proud of it. I really loved how it turned out. Chad Lewis, the artist, crushed it on really short notice. And we did get to introduce some. I finally got him to meet me halfway on a lot of the, cre- the cre- uh, um, creature creation. <clears throat> we introduced these things that I called the harpies. They're like these these weird bird-like things that looked almost like people that had this weird um, way of singing that kind of almost like speech. And like they were the thing that actually gave Kong its name. Whenever a Kong was coming close, it would make this weird gurgling sound that sounded like Kong. And that's where the natives got the word. Mm. Um, and it was super fun. And some of these monsters we ended up putting in there were, were great, but it was like, it was just a, a fight the whole way. So that was, that was kind of annoying, but it, um, it still couldn't be, I can't really describe it as a horrible situation because I was still very proud of the book and very proud of how, how it turned out. Anyway, that's my that would be my not so best, but in the end, it was still a happy ending. Well, that's good. You're proud of it. I mean, that's that's a nice thing. It, it, yeah, it wasn't a disaster all around. Um, the, yeah, the faith the faith thing was a big problem too, actually, because oh. they were they were super touchy about it. Like they were like they wanted to act completely steer the direction of the entire point of the story, where faith being ended up the thing that saved everyone. And I was like, bro, this is not the story we're telling. Mm-hmm. Um. It can't be like it is not. They kind of wanted to turn into like a almost like a evangelical piece, mm-hmm. and I was like, like it's that is not what the story is. Like I, I was, I ended up being careful not to offend anyone um, too much, <laughs> but uh, but again, it was a lot of back and forth on that. So yeah. Anyway, the end. Kong turned out great. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's tackle your best project, one that you're most proud of, and why. Um, at the time of this recording, I have written my first couple issues of Superman and my first issue of Alien. And I'm as proud of them as anything I've done. Straight up. And I haven't even gotten notes back on the Alien thing yet. Like, it's all, it's all it's just barely happening. Um, Gosh, what else? Like, stuff that's already been created. I'm really proud of that Aquaman story. That's a very personal story to me. I was, my first meeting, I was on tour, actually, um, and got a hold of Brian Cunningham. This is after Brian had reached out to me. But I was in L.A. I was like, hey, would you want to meet up? And so we went and got lunch or dinner or something at uh, like lunch, I think, in, in L.A. Um, in Burbank, like close to their offices at the time. And um, so we met up and we talked about, I think, I think my son had just been born or maybe not even born yet. And Brian had his own stories about family he wanted to talk about, too. Um, 
you know, we had this like really like a real conversation, um, not just about comics, but about like life and things that matter to us. And, and that became this first issue of Aquaman, um, that I'm still intensely proud of a story that is about, I mean, the characters are these, you know, technicolor superheroes that have been around forever and have been in all these different kinds of stories. But this one was one that I felt mattered to me at least. And that my son is going to be able to look back on years from now and see himself in it and see how much I love him and how much I wanted him before he was here. Um, so I'm, I'm very proud of that story. And I, I try to do that with all my stories. I try to tell something that really matters to me. I, I try to take tell stories that matter to me and dress them up in comic booky ways. The trap is to fall into a story where you're just telling a story about people punching shit, and just, nobody cares about that. Like it, it's it might be cool looking, but if it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. Like it has to be about has to have some kind of emotional core. And I guess that was my problem with the original zombies, where it, it was fun, but it wasn't the kind of story I wanted to tell. So stories like Last Sons of America about human trafficking and adoption adopting kids that still have families out there and um lords of appalachia about the disillusion of our nation and maybe even more than those aquaman about about my son and how we almost didn't have him um those those stories matter to me a lot yeah those i mean i guess i would have to name those it's hard to pick it really is like choosing your kids because i mean it's literally about your kids um, all I, right which one's your favorite kid <laughs> no. well, i just got the one so i'm good there <laughs> that's an easy answer yes yeah that's an excellent answer. So thank you for sharing that. We really, of course, really if, I had, if I had to choose one, I guess I would say the Aquaman one because of what it means to me personally and the, that conversation that it grew out of and how it was meaningful for the editor as well. And, um, yeah, I'm very, very proud of that story. And even though, um, the artist, Max Fumara, um, just, just crushed it. And it was so beautifully done. Um, it's, it's the kind of story where if you put yourself in it, if you really pay attention to the story that's being told and, and read it thoughtfully, you can, it can literally, you can cry from it. Like it really is a story that matters and those, it's heartbreaking moments and Max just drew this shit out of it. Like it is so beautifully done by him and Dave. Um, and people were kind of giving him, kind of throwing shade on him when it came out because his art is so stylized. It's so not the house style, not that house style is a thing anymore, but it doesn't, Max's style is not one that you would associate with superhero comics, really. And people were like, man, everything looks so weird. How is this a real face? Blah, blah, blah. Just giving him all kinds of crap. And I almost took pride in reading those lame comments because, I mean, they didn't get it, but I got it. You know, I, I, I saw what Max had done and how beautiful it was. Um, I'm just so proud of that book. Final answer. <laughs> Locked in. Locked in. Do you have any any last? No, thank last you so thoughts? much for all your time today, Philip. Oh man, it really is my pleasure. Yeah, thanks so much for letting me talk about the new books, Superman and the Alien. Superman hits in January. Alien hits in February. I've got some other, <laughs> got some other books coming up too that I can't talk about yet. Um, that other like ongoing series is going to be announced before too long, I think. And Last God is about to wrap. Like I turned into the last script the other day, and that's coming together. That ends around you know the end of this year. Um, Batman, my Tales from the Dark Multiverse Batman comes out in November. Kill a Man comes out this fall as well. My MMA story that I'm co-writing with Steve Orlando. Really appreciate the chance to talk about those books and um, to talk to you guys. Absolutely. Thank you. Dan, thanks for your work in the retail industry as well, man. We need those shops, and I hope you guys are making it through all this pretty well and appreciate your work. Thank you. 
And thank you, the audience, for listening to this episode of Amuse. Please check the show notes for links on some of the topics we discussed. For more conversations with creative professionals, please hit the subscribe button. Until next time, that's a wrap. Thank you.